This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Nomad Land. everybody you were just listening to the trailer for nomadland and the story is as follows follows a woman in her 60s who after losing everything in the great recession embarks on a journey through the american west living as a van dwelling modern day nomad the film is starring francis mcdormand davis trefarin linda may charlene swanky and bob wells it is written and directed by chloe jaw here to join me for this podcast review i have nicole ackman hi everybody Ryan C. Showers. Hey, everyone. Casey Lee Clark. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Bear. We be the bitches of the Badlands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dan, genuinely, whenever that line happened, I was like, this better frickin' be Dan's opening line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for the GIF memes, honestly. <laughs> yes. Well... Nomadland is a film that premiered earlier this year at the Venice International Film Festival to universal acclaim winning the Golden Lion. It then showed at the Toronto International Film Festival where it won the People's Choice Award and it also was selected to play at Telluride. Suffice to say, this is a movie that has made not only the festival rounds, but has made the rounds into everyone's hearts who seems to see it. It is one of the most acclaimed films of the year, and I think that even in a non-Rona year, it would have been a huge Oscar contender regardless, and that is very much what it is. I'm very, very excited to talk about this film early, too, because this movie is not actually going to be seen widely until early 2021, but it has played in enough places, and it is currently having a virtual screening right now through Film Society at Lincoln Center, where others are getting a chance to watch it, so we figured now is a good time to talk about Nomadland. Let's first start off with Casey Lee Clark. Casey? thoughts on Nomadland? So I saw the film back in October through the Philadelphia Film Festival. They did a virtual festival with a few drive-in screenings, and I was very lucky to see it at the drive-in with my mom. 
Um, the drive-in that they've made up here in Philly is near the Naval Yard, so it's near the water in a more non-city aspect of the city. And while I was a little nervous of seeing this film in this type of setting, it felt like the perfect setting for it, being in a vehicle and being outdoors. It, I think, enveloped a mood to the film that invoked it both on the screen and outside of it. We had a great view and... Um, I was blown away by this film. I found it deeply personal and it was an emotional journey for me. I would say Um, I'm one of the many people in this country who is currently out of work and has been out of work for the pandemic. And I think that that aspect of this film, along with the feelings of loneliness and kind of searching for connection and a way of being and whatnot, I think moved me deeply and something that I strongly connected to in this film. I think that it is beautifully shot. I think the performances from both the professional actors, Francis McDormand is incredible. I think one of her most naturalistic performances, as well as the non-actors, the nomads themselves. I think it's just a really honest and beautiful piece of filmmaking. It's so far my favorite film of the year and I can't wait to talk about it. All right. Awesome. Let's now kick it over to Ryan C. Showers. Okay, everybody. Wow. Okay. Well, so um, as uh, so, my first um, season uh, on Next Best Picture was um, the 2017 season when Three Billboards came out, and as we know, Frances McDormand swept her way through the um, through the precursors. Um, I'm I've always been a big fan of Frances McDormand, um, and I think you know, my I, I my respect and admiration for her um, was taken to another level with Three Billboards, and I have to say. Um, if there was, I, I think she had a daunting task with picking her next project, and I don't think she could have made a better choice than Nomadland because her performance is just phenomenal here. It's it's flawless, um, and I think it's just as good as Three Billboards. And had she not won for that, she would probably be winning for this in a walk, you know. And that being said, it's not just um, whenever I say the word flawless, I'm not just referring to her performance. It's the entire film is pretty pretty flawless i saw it through the um new york film festival back in september and i was blown away by it um i'm i have to say like the the objective quality like uh, the objective quality here is unimpeachable i i can't think of another, another film um that i've seen in recent memory that is as perfectly executed as this one um and that goes to uh, the direction i am and I have to say, I do find it to be a very resonant film thematically. And that's why I have been championing the screenplay, because I do think there's a lot of merits in what the screenplay puts forth in terms of the, the what the film talks about. And it's communicated through a lot of different ways, not just dialogue and, and you know constant plotting. Um, it's a very uh, quiet and tranquil film, but it's an emotional one, too. Um, it's very beautiful. I know it's silly to say this um, because all art is subjective, uh, but I do think there is an objective level um, to every film. And with this film, it's especially apparent. I think there's a certain amount of respect that we can take with um, the direction here and the types of um, themes that it explores that are very um, visceral uh, and, and quietly so that uh, I, I, opposed to any other film this year, I feel like there's that this one is undeniable in that aspect. Um, and I, uh, think it's just, um, beautiful filmmaking. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think it's some of the most beautiful filmmaking I've seen this year as well. Uh, why don't we now hear from Josh Parham? Josh, what did you think of Nomadland? Well, um, thinking back to the first time I saw this movie, it was during the kind of festival season back in, I believe it was October. I cannot remember, honestly, which festival it was because there was a lot of things happening in October. And I cannot remember what happened like last week, let alone a month ago or two months ago. So, But I do remember really loving it. I think that Chloe Zhao is a filmmaker that I have a lot of admiration for. I really, really liked The Writer. That was one of my favorite movies of that particular year. And I echo a lot of the sentiments that have already been said. I find this to be a movie that has such respect for this kind of tranquil beauty within the natural landscape that is this country. And I find it to be just so moving in terms of looking at somebody who is dealing with trauma and grief, but trying to not necessarily incorporate it into their life, but to tolerate it and to understand that with that pain comes a lot of appreciation of many other aspects in your life that's that you're willing to have pride in. And I found that to be a really poignant exploration. And I think it's really constructed around a brilliant performance from Frances McDormand. I, I really do think that it's something quite different from her too, which I found really fascinating. And I really do believe that Chloe Zhao's sensibilities as a filmmaker just are so in line with what I look for in movies that are a little bit slow, that are very quiet and reserved, but I think have so much internally to say. And I tend to really respond to that. And I really responded to this movie as well. All right. All righty. Now let's hear from Nicole Ackman. So Ryan actually set me up well for what I want to say, which is that I, and I hate to say this, I didn't love Nomadland. I wanted to. Um, and I think it's impeccably well made. And I have a lot of respect for it. But something about it, I just struggled to connect with emotionally a little bit. All of that said, I think that Frances McDormand is great. I think the direction is great. I think it's exploring a really fascinating subject. But, like, at the end of the film, I did have a little bit of a, like, oh, okay, that's it. Which, and I hate to say that because I, I like, I did want to like this. Um, and I did think that it was really well directed and really well made. But it just didn't entirely come together for me. All right. Well, I am uh, disappointed to hear that, but I understand your reasoning uh, for reasons that I myself will get into in a little bit. Dan Bear. Okay, so I saw this uh, at uh, at the Toronto Film Festival this year, uh, back at the beginning of September, uh, and I think it had just premiered at Venice, like just before it premiered at tiff if i'm remembering correctly pretty much like within days i believe it was yeah it was like very close but like and the reviews out of venice were like raves and you know we had all been anticipating this movie um for so long because chloe java such made such a name for herself with the writer um and i was really excited for it and guys i <laughs> i hate this movie so much what because and and this happened just now when I was watching it again just for this. I I get through like 80, 90% of this movie and I am right there with it. I am ready to give it the 10 out of 10 masterpiece level review that it deserves. And then the ending happens and 
I I feel I I, I feel nothing. <laughs> There's this level that that ending is try. I can see it reaching for, and it just doesn't get me there. It brings me right up to the line of saying this is a great, this is a masterpiece movie, and I, I can't cross it. And I want to so bad because there is so much that I love about this movie. I'm beginning with Frances McDormand, who on a second watch was even better than I remembered her being. And I think that there is no one else in Hollywood who could have played this role anywhere near as well, to the point where I'm willing to say there's just no one in Hollywood that could have played this role other than Frances McDormand. I think that the the staunchness and authenticity that she brings to this part is solely her own, and she is just fantastic. And I just don't know why that ending doesn't work and so i need y'all to help me perform an autopsy on this movie or on my heart whichever one it is and and figure out what it is i about that ending and i think i think i have an answer why but even then i feel like it should work in theory and for me it just doesn't and i and i i am so mad at this movie because of it <laughs> All right, you had me going there for a second in terms of why you were so mad at this movie, but okay. It's all starting to make a little bit more sense now, at least. Uh, so for myself, my big thing, and I think you guys know this about me uh, at this point, is that I don't typically like, quote-unquote, slow movies all that much, and I especially don't like movies that are devoid of conflict or drama. And Nomadland... For a lot of its running time, is not a movie that is really hanging on conflict. I, I'm not even sure necessarily throughout most of the running time what it is that Fern, played by Francis McDormand, ap- like actually wants. And I think that's the point. I think that these people, herself included, are lost. They are misplaced. After, um, you know, in, in her in her case, her town of uh, Empire, Empire, Nevada, after what was it? They said like uh, 88 years, the zip code was just like completely discontinued and boom, all of a sudden now everybody that's living there does not have a home anymore. So it's interesting how these people are, you know, not homeless, as they say, uh, houseless. But they are really going through life, moving forward, just not in a direction that's clearly laid out for them. And I feel like the narrative of this movie kind of falls that path where you never know where it's actually going to go because the narrative structure of it and how the story actually unfolds is not one that follows a traditional narrative structure of what you would expect uh, a a character's journey to be like necessarily. Uh, We're mostly just watching Fern have these uh, very tiny experiences. And the editing is, you know, something that's very, very purposeful in bringing us from moment to moment to moment, not necessarily having them flow into each other, but just kind of giving us this very, broad overview of who these people are, how do they live, down to the smallest details, 
and you know she casts Chloe Chloe Zhao uh, casts non actors in these roles to support uh, Francis McDormand, other than David Strathairn, and they all just feel so authentic. And I think that's a testament to like what you're saying, Dan, about like how good Francis McDormand's performance in this is. She doesn't feel like she is giving a performance, and I think that that is maybe even more difficult than actually turning everything up to a 10 and delivering a look at me, look at me type of performance. Like she feels like she just naturally fits in with everyone else in this movie. So the tone of it all is exactly as it needs to be and where it does not have that conflict or drama that I'm necessarily speaking of that I would expect from a movie like this, it instead makes up for it with a fascinating overview and study of this lifestyle and the people within it. Well, the conflict is mostly internalized. It's very much a dissection of these characters, like both uh, uh, a Fern and all of the people that she interacts with, that these are people that have gone through, you know, very serious events in their lives, but they are kind of channeling that, grief and trauma in a way that is self-sufficient for them. Like for them, it's about looking at ways to kind of take independence within your own life and yeah, set out on the road and see what life is going to throw at you, but just to find ways to live that life uh, on your own terms. And that exploration is something I found very moving within the story. And you see that a lot within McDoran's performance. You see that, perfectly within all of the non-actors that they have in this movie that feel like so natural in the way that they are interacting with both McDormand and just the overall narrative. And that exploration is what I find to be so resonant throughout this entire story and why I really respond to such deep character work that's going on in the film. And I agree with Josh, like 100%. I think, and um, everything that Josh said about the character aspect of the, the circumstances and what they're trying to do within themselves, like there's this human level to uh, to the political themes that the film um, just has in the subtext that um, is a really interesting way to look at the recent history of the United States um, with the um, economic recession. Picking, uh, you know, endorsing what Josh said again, um, it is interesting to see the way that everything so naturally just flows, um, you know, through Francis McDormand and the plot and how everything just just happens. And that's kind of the magic of this movie. And it's kind of amazing to me that the film was executed so perfectly because from I have to imagine as a filmmaker, it's hard to, you know, excel or you know you know perfect like the art of of natural acting capturing things as though they would be in real life in a without in an unscripted way and i think nomadland it it is like the quintessential example of that i think that part of my issue with it actually is that as great as francis mcdormand is I actually find Fern to be maybe the least compelling character. Like all of the books with Linda May and Swanky, I was so here for it. And then I spent the entire rest of the movie being like, where's Swanky? I want Swanky back. I found those characters to be so much more engaging that then whenever there are those kind of long periods away from some of those people, 
I found it a lot harder to kind of stick with it, which I thought was interesting that like, I guess sort of the less narrative bit that was more of just this slice of life of all these different types of people who, you know, are part of this, like, I guess, subculture, you might call it, uh, was so much more interesting to me. Well, going back to what Josh was saying earlier about how the drama of this movie is more internal, you know, Nicole, I, I do kind of agree with you to a certain extent because it feels like Fern's internal drama is is something that is revealed to us slowly throughout the movie. We get little bits and pieces more and more about what her life was like with her husband, uh, Bo, who is now uh, deceased. We also learn a little bit more about her uh, uh, her relationship with her sister. And, and these are things that happen, you know, th- you know, as we go throughout the movie. But it's kind of hard in the very, very beginning of the film, very early on, to really understand what does Fern want? What is she hoping to get out of all this? Is she doing this by choice? It's a little unclear. And I don't know if the movie for some people, because there are a lot of people who really are very invested in this character and in this movie and the story. I I can totally understand if somebody said to me, like, I I don't know what we're doing here. I don't know, like, why we're following this character and what the point of this movie is. Like, I I I can totally feel that if somebody were to kind of, you know, throw that level of criticism at it. I'll say this is one of the things that sort of like became more apparent to me on a second watch. Um, is that like the first time I saw it, I thought that I thought kind of the way Nicole did were in, you know, like the, I was so much more interested when it was being just this slice of life and the other people. And I found Fern to be the least interesting character in the whole thing. But then watching it again, the second time, knowing her full story, her character and McDermott's performance were both so much more interesting to me. Oh, I definitely agree. (laughs) It definitely holds up better on a rewatch, especially, you know, Dan, I think you and I experienced this, uh, you know, during the early festival buzz, uh, you know, during TIFF when we saw the film, but I, I I can't help but feel like there was a very heightened level of expectation heading into this that might have underwhelmed me just ever so slightly. Like, I still, I love this movie. I really, really do love this movie. Yeah. But I can't, like, kind of sit back and say it's a perfect 10 out of 10 masterpiece. I'm, I'm just not quite there. <laughs> yeah, I can't either. And I think it does come down to the fact that like when this is being that sort of travelogue kind of plotless shaggy sort of road movie in the first act and some of the second act it it's really i think pretty unambiguously great it you know it is sort of you know slow and about nothing but it does move there's interest in the people that we see and the places we visit and how joshua james richards uh, shoots everything it's just you know unbelievably gorgeous but then it starts to bring in more of a plot and that's when i find it to be less interesting and more generic in what it's trying to say about this character. When it is about the community of these work campers and um, about embedding us in that culture, it's fantastic. But when Fern becomes the, instead of the point of view character, the main character, I, 
I lose a little bit of interest. And there's an element of that where, like I said, on paper, it should work because all those scenes with her at her sister's house and when she goes to visit David Strathairn, they they, they should work because they are setting up um, her sort of journey and what she's going through. And it sets up that trip back to her her home of uh fuck what was the name of the town empire empire um a very popular television show yes Uh, (laughs) fair and it's all setting up that trip back home and it, it it should work on paper but there's no once we move away from that community i feel so i feel like it the heart and so that's where the heart and the soul of this movie is, not with Fern. And it, when she becomes that main character, it feels in the smallest way like a betrayal of what the movie had been up to that point. I see, agree completely. Uh, see, I am, I'm going to disagree a little bit. I, Me I too. can see the perspective of the movie does kind of slow down a little bit too much in the second half. And I do think it meanders start it starts to kind of meander a little bit more that i think it's really tight attention in the first half isn't quite there but what i do appreciate about the storytelling anyway is that she is somebody that initially doesn't fully get why she has all of this like grief around her like yes she's dealing with the death of her husband and the the town like disappearing but Initially, she's like just leaving because this is just what needs to happen. And she gets introduced to all these people who give a lot of color to her life and have all these great experiences. But at the end of the day, it's always been about like eventually you're not going to stay there forever and you're going to keep going. But the point of of the of why she needs to keep going is to eventually figure out what is the like the sources of all of these emotions that she's feeling. So. Yes, it does seem like it might get to that point where she goes back to her home as seeming a little forced, but I think it's so revelatory of where her character needs to be, and when she gets there and understands it, then the next step is getting back on the road and seeing more people, and it might be the same people again. Yeah, I think the whole thing for me is a big grief journey of her kind of going on this journey to kind of put away and not think about um, her grief towards her late husband and like, you know, putting all their stuff in storage and still kind of having the house and not dealing with it. And that the end is kind of her letting that go and letting go of that, those feelings in that life and trying to form her own path. You know, it mm-hmm. makes a point that she got married kind of, kind of young and it was just the two of them for all that time that I think she needs to find her own life separate from that relationship. And I think it's her kind of attempting to figure that out, whether that's this lifestyle or something else. It's just, I think it goes from her put, like trying to block out those feelings and block out having to deal with that and let all that go. And then her actually being able to do that. I think her sister uh, tells her at one point that like, she's always been this way though. And yeah. that she was always someone that was on the move and someone that was always uh, looking for uh, something outside of the norm, if you will. And, you know, I, I was always thinking about like how, I have I have a I have a very good friend of mine who also is someone that like his whole life, every decision that he makes, every job he takes, every place that he lives, it's all about moving forward. It's oh, it, he never, ever, ever like stays stagnant. He's not a homebody. He's not someone to settle down 
if you will. And Fern strikes me as that type of person as well. Someone who uh, even like when she has these great opportunities that on the surface look like they would be cozy and comforting and really inviting and warm, whether it's staying with her sister or staying with uh, Dave, she needs to keep on moving. And I think that that journey of self-discovery is one that I don't think we actually ever get a relevatory kind of a big aha moment necessarily at the end, yeah. like some sort of grand catharsis. I, I think she is still searching, hence why after even she goes back home, she ends up back on the road again. And that's the final shot of the movie. So, you know, it's it's a mystery to us for how long she will keep on going on this journey. And maybe like some of the other characters that she has encountered, maybe it will be until uh, her death and old age. You know, it's like, the, the road just keeps on going, but there are people out there that I like, I, you know, I can uh, equate this to who can never sit still and can never just let life pass them by. Mm-hmm. They would rather be spontaneous and experience new places, new things. And I think Chloe Jaw does a really great job of in these, like I said before, these like small moments, whether it's Frances McDormand with the snake around her mm-hmm. neck or when she's going through the canyons you know, there there are just these moments where even I'm watching and I'm saying to myself, God, like I've got more possessions than than Fern does. I have a roof over my head. I've got like all this stuff. But I, do I have as many experiences as she does in life? And or as much happiness? Like, have you ever seen anyone as happy as she is when she was sort of skipping away from that tour group and getting lost among those? <laughs> <laughs> pillars of rocks i mean like it's it's joyous in a way that is totally disarming and i love it so much like it's almost childlike and there's an element of like i can just see just Fr- she's not acting in that scene like it's just francis mcdormand like evading the park police and like just having fun. <laughs> and i love it so much but again like i, I need to go back to something you said matt because the that whole thing with her sister where she psychoanalyzes Fern. It's like, you know, you were always braver and more honest than everybody else. And this time through, I didn't do this the first time through, but this time through, I sort of rolled my eyes at that because it's such a, it's such an overdone cliche storytelling trope. But everyone's trying to put her in the box and, and the people that she lives with, like when she has that scene with, um, uh, with uh, her other family members and, she gets a little antagonistic, you know, and confrontational with them because she feels slighted that they're like putting her in a box and looking down on her, you know, and, and the life that she's chosen to live. And I I feel that because at the end of the day, while it is odd and may not be maybe our own definition of what we would consider to be ideal, people got to do what people got to do to find yeah. that self-happiness and inner peace. Yeah. And, and I and, get it. And I got that so much. But then the more they tried to explain Fern and what she'd been through and what her, you know, well, you know, what her history was, the more they explained that, the less interesting I found her. I thought that they didn't need the sister to psychoanalyze her. They didn't need that, you know, a, a lot of this, you know, backstory. They just needed Frances McDormand and that face to tell us everything that we needed to know or to, you know, let that be an enigma, a mystery. I feel like that would have been so much more in keeping with the 
um, the tone and pacing of the film than what they gave us. I think that that whole sequence at her sister's, I think cut that or at least cut all the dialogue from it. And I think the movie is stronger for, for leaving that out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. See, I, you know, um, I've heard most of you guys talk about the film like, in terms of like, like almost like compartmentalizing like Fran the character versus like Fran her journey. And I, like, in meeting all of these people, and I never looked at the film as like, in, in that way, I always viewed like the character aspects to intertwine with the travel aspects, and I think that's why it works so beautifully for me. And maybe, maybe I just have a maybe um, I just saw the film differently. I just I didn't really view them as separate, and I do agree that there there is some pacing issues at towards the end of the film, and that's why that's informed in my rating of the film. But I don't think that the film uh, for me. Fran the person and Fran the journey are intertwined. They aren't. Um, they aren't separate. Yeah, I agree. And I just Ryan, when you say that, were you talking about Frances McDormand or Fern? Well, the character. Uh, both. I mean, like the, the okay. character development that we're criticizing that, that, that some are criticizing, and versus the the types of people and um, atmosphere that she encounters earlier on. If that makes sense. You know, one movie that this actually reminded me of in a lot of ways in terms of um, its themes and some of its uh, content as well was actually wild, which we reviewed uh, not too long ago here on the podcast. And I do think that I, I do think that in the end, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a good place with where, the story ends up where Fern ends up, where Chloe Jaw takes us. Like I'm in, I'm in a very positive place on this movie overall. They're just, it, it's very odd that the emotional high point of this movie is a monologue from an actress that I've never heard of before named Swanky. Yep. And it appears within the first act of the movie. And I was thinking that there was going to be, I don't know. I don't know if I was expecting like some big cathartic monologue from McDormand or if I was expecting uh, a scene between her and Strafarin where she does outright reject him. And it's kind of a gut punch instead of just leaving like she does quietly. I don't, I don't know what I, 
I, I think expectation maybe got in the way. But then again, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this movie is not about delivering what we expect, right? It's about delivering the organic and natural flow of things. And sometimes we as humans can also be uh, very messy and complicated in our emotions. So I think in many ways the film you know, really sets out to really achieves what it sets what it sets out to do. Yeah, that's the tone that this movie is going for mostly. Like there aren't going to be like really big emotional moments. I, I don't think that's the type of movie that this wants to be and not the type of story that is being told and, and crafted here. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that this movie doesn't have emotional moments. I think another great one is towards the end of the film where Fern is talking to Bob and they're both kind of mm -hmm. confessing what is driving them throughout this entire enterprise where she really does talk about how, you know, her, the memory of her husband has sort of been more important than actually like living her own life after his death. And that's sort of what's been driving most of her kind of turmoil. And then you hear Bob and his story about his son and how, that's really been affecting him, but it's also given him motivation to live his own life to the fullest and to meet more people and to keep going. And I think that at the end of the day, it's always been about that. And I think that's what the movie's really trying to communicate about, that it's really a story of needing to keep going in your life, no matter what circumstances are thrown in your way and trying to find your own self-sufficient method to do that and power through the turmoil and grief that might be present in your life. Yeah. And I, again, like that's not something that really became apparent to me until the, this most recent time that I watched it. Um, because one of the first things we see Fern do in the film is she's at this storage unit and she takes out, you know, a, a big man's jacket and sort of looks at it for a really long time and and smells it brings it close and smells it and the first time you see the movie you're like well, what what is happening there and then of course this time through knowing the whole story it's like oh that's what that's her husband's and it everything sort of clicked into clicked into place and this that I was able to follow that journey more clearly the second time. And I think that it's done really, really well. It's just that <laughs> the journey of her through this world, through this this subculture and the people she meets is so much more engaging to me than her solo inner journey. And not that I don't think it's well done, I, I do. I just, I the film seems more interested in this subculture than it does in her, and so I'm, I guess I'm just like very confused as to why then it decides to become more about her. You know, Dan, you know when you were saying one of the first things that we see Frances McDormand do at the beginning of this movie, I, I first I thought you were going to say we, we see her pee. Oh, <laughs> yes, we do, we do. Uh, as only the fearless. Oscar winner could. <laughs> and I was going to just say in regards to that, you know, we were talking before about how uh, natural Frances McDormand really is oh, in this performance. So good. She's also just so uh, – what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, I, I was going to say emotionally naked, but I think I'm also thinking of the fact that, A, she, she is naked in this movie. B, she's not afraid to show her just – there's scenes of her just going to the bathroom. <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's like, this is so 
unflattering for any any actress maybe in some ways but at the same time it feels so freeing and when i think of francis mcdormand like the person i think of an actress who really does have no limits and she has absolutely nothing holding her down and she can literally take on any role that she absolutely sets her mind to and she wants and i i love that about this movie because this is why this is why I think like casting Francis McDormand is a stroke of genius. When you have an actress like that, that is a that good, b that powerful, and c um, really gives you that feeling of someone that just feels completely boundless. That also speaks to the themes of the movie, and I I, I just once again it's like you know you were mentioning before about how no other actress could have possibly have played this. It's like, you know, it's when you said that, I was like, well, Meryl Streep could have probably have played this. You know, I was thinking. But but I do think that there is, like I said, something that does definitely go into the mindset of we're casting Frances McDormand, not just because she's a great actress, but because of the fact that she is Frances McDormand, it's only going to help to sell the themes of the movie even that much more subconsciously to the viewer. She has a quality about her that is just so singularly her and so perfect for this. Like the way she says bye to people, bye. And then she just like turns away really fast, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And it's also like an incredibly nuanced performance. I feel like some of the ways that we talk about it, like it's this like dour introspective things. And there's a lot of moments where she, you know, is silly and joyful and has just this energy and this presence about her that, it for me, she just leaves everything on the screen. Like she just gives her entire self to this performance, and I, I've I've loved her work for so long, and I think that it's so different from everything else that she's done, but also so inherently her that I think it's just a perfect combination of artist and material, like you were saying. Yeah, she um, she really connects with um, uh, Chloe's vision for the film and what uh, she's trying to convey. Like they were very much on the same page. And I have to say, though, even though, like, in a way, it's almost like this is so much who Frances McDormand is. It's like, well, how much is she really putting forth in the characterization? Um, But I really think that there is such a strong emotional core to what Frances McDormand does with the characterization that makes this such a masterful performance. Um, It it really, it's, and like, it's so different from Fargo and from Three Billboards, so Hypothetically, if she were to, I think this will be one of the performances she's remembered for. Um, and it will be interesting to co- compare and contrast um, her work because she does have a, na- a niche, a niche um, with uh, with the types of roles that she chooses. But they're not um, they're not unrelated to each other while being wild, wildly different. And this is just another chapter in that resume. What do you guys think of uh, doting David Strefferin in this movie and uh, his... Uh his absolute clinginess to uh, Fern <laughs> throughout this movie. I liked him. I liked him a lot. Yeah. I, yeah. while he fits into it very differently than she does, I think that, you know, he just seems like a, he reminded me a lot of like my dad and some of my dad's friends being of that age and being these like, you know, working men, but also being like very sweet and kind of clumsy. I think that there was, I think the, the importance of having it be a known or known-ish actor of that way, every time he's on screen, you go, oh, right, it's that guy. 
because you have to have that mentality because he comes in and out so many times that it's not just some random face that you don't recognize that immediately that it's this specific character and it's the specific person that keeps coming in and out of her life. I agree. I I really liked him. I will say I had some issues in terms of um, buying that relationship or whatever you, you know, friendship between them. Um, I didn't fully, I don't know. I felt like maybe I wasn't getting enough on Fern's side from that, um, that I kind of spent a lot of being like, okay, but like, what am I meant to feel about this? guy um but i do think that like he did a good job with the role i think any issues that i have with that are more in the writing well i think that it's very clear that you know he you know obviously likes her i mean the screenplay says as much and i think it's very clear from the very very beginning that she just sees him as a friend and is not interested in him in that manner or that way and i do think a lot of that actually informs us a lot about who the character is once again and what the character is going through maybe she doesn't want to get close to him because she's afraid of uh experiencing that kind of loss again you know and that's like something that's not necessarily stated but it can be inferred and i think that um there is an element of power in the screenplay that that is not fully ever explained but is something that you know you you can dig for maybe and come to a conclusion of on your own well, it, I think it would be almost like a different kind of loss that she would face with him. Not necessarily like that he that they would be together and he would die, but more so that he has a family to go back to. You know, he has this other life that is kind of waiting for him. And it's only really on him that he chooses not to accept that. And when he finally does, it it's not really like a betrayal. I don't think it's really meant to be looked at that way, but it's more so like... Yes, obviously, he has people in his life that cares about him. And that's the thing that she knows will always be like the gravity that will pull him back. And it's a great like kind of system of support that's there. But it's one that is so elusive to her. And I think her recognition of that is what makes her feel a little like she's friendly to him, but is not willing to totally invite him into her world because she knows that he's tethered to another one. And it almost, it almost feels like though, as if it comes into conflict then with her own plans for what she wants out of life and, or what she's hoping to get out of it, if you will. And it's a journey that someone else can't do for her. She has to do for herself. Exactly. So if he's not willing to come along the journey with her and continue to go down the road, then they can't be together essentially. And I I actually think that the performance that his performance is very strong. Um, I I think that he has enough characterization um, to make this such a a nice three dimensional character, just as much as Fern is, um, with his respective screen time, of course. But like, I do think that his performance is something that is being ignored with a lot of the other takes in the film. Um, you know, from the the first interaction between the two of them, I I thought, um, wow, this guy really has it going on. They got great chemistry together in their scenes, so much so in that scene where he wants to help her uh, when she has the ant problem and he breaks her dishes. Oh like, that God. scene hurt me. I, 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 I felt physically ill. I, I really <laughs> want to talk about this scene because this is actually my favorite scene in the movie. Okay, sure. Really? Yeah, well, it, it's my favorite scene because it gets to me at like the heart of what a lot of the character work in this movie is. Because it's a to me, I see it as like really, this really big metaphor that happens where... You see this plate that falls and crashes, and it's the plate that her father 
had and, and he gave it to her. So obviously it means a lot sentimentally. And I find what that moment means is like you see it happen and it's sort of a representation of the character herself as somebody who's gone through something very traumatic and is broken. And there's a moment where you just sort of look at the pieces that are in front of you just shattered and you're taken aback and shocked. But what do you do after that? You gather the pieces, you glue it back together, and, you know, it might not be quite as sturdy as it once was. It's a little bit more rougher around the edges, but it's still durable and it's still usable. And you figure out the ways to put the pieces back together so you can still keep going forward. And I find that to be such an elegant metaphor for the entire character journey that we're seeing. And it's encapsulated in a very brief moment, but I find that to be so well executed from the performances you see and from the overall writing and the direction and the way that it, it is shot. I find all the themes that this movie's working with is in this one little moment within the film. That's amazing. I, I, I totally recognize it now that you've said it, but I definitely did not think of it. I was just thinking of how much I was hurt for David Strafferin in that scene. <laughs> Cause he's like a he's like a wounded puppy dog when she like tells him over there. Now. Oh my god, I love that so much. I, I loved her. Re- I loved her reaction to what happened. Like it wasn't to yell at him. It wasn't even to give him the silent treatment. It was you need to go over there now. Because <laughs> I cannot even deal with you, and I need to be in my own space right now. It's and, the tone of I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And like, and I love everything about that scene. And I totally got all those things that you were saying, Josh. And I just like wish that the movie then did something with it. <laughs> like, I mean, cause it does. I, and there is the, the really nice moment later, like right after when she goes and she glues it back together and she gets it back together pretty much at a clean break yeah and i i don't know like i get it and i like that moment and but then the movie continues on after that (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's the point though the point is that yes it's a big moment but you find the ways to like fix it as best as possible and then the whole point is that you're moving down the road further yes I, I get that, and I and I, w- I just I wish I got something more emotional out of that. Like I got what she was saying for, and then when I got I got what Chloe Joe was saying with this movie, and you know, with all the themes and everything, and that. But I get to the end, and I'm just like, well, that was nice. So another uh, moment in this movie too, like another character interaction, uh, is with Linda May. And it's a small one because I I do think that when we get to especially the final thoughts here, I know that you guys are all going to have like these little micro moments in a movie that you're going to like probably mention. But like one for me was with Linda May, where when she hugs Fern and she says goodbye to her and all she says is, you have given me so much. (laughs) Like, it's so weird how these tiny, small, very humanistic moments like just had such a profound impact on me while watching this movie and really just encapsulating the support that this community, like they all have for each other, uh, whether they have a flat tire or if they just need help with clearing things out or like um, 
uh, I believe it was Swanky was having the uh, the sale, mm-hmm. right, of all the items, and it it really is just this wholesome, really really overall positive vibe that you get while watching this. That there are these people that, once again, we look at them from afar and we say, "Oh, you're not living in houses. That, that must be." unusual but look how united they all are together as a community look how much they love and care and support one another like do we feel that in our own communities i don't know that's something like i love all of the things that take place within this community because it's so and the the shared humanity of everyone there there is no you know you and me to them it's all about the community and you know what we can do for each other just as humans who are living, you know, under the same circumstances, what can we give to each other? What can we offer each other? How can we help each other? And I think that is really, really beautiful. And it played so beautifully. I loved the scenes where we had those people. It felt very much like the, the firing scenes and up in the air where they're just like talking about why they're, why they decided to live in a van Mm -hmm. and there, there's so much beautiful, like humaneness on display. And and I love it so much. I really do. But you hate it so much too. Well, I hate it because I I already know why you already, you already said why it becomes about (laughs) Fern instead of about this community of people where it seems like it's heart really is. I think that that's sort of the point, though. Like, we have <laughs> a agree. lot of reference for this community, and she doesn't see herself a part of it, I think, initially. That's the reason why she doesn't go along with all of them when they eventually leave and she stays behind. I I think that, yes, there is a lot of respect and appreciation for what this community is doing and what they're doing for each other, but I don't think that Fern at that point is kind of really at the place where she's willing to fully accept the entire thesis of that, which is why she goes away and comes back. And that plays into the whole thematic kind of exploration that the movie's working with, too. They literally say the kind of whole point of this lifestyle is to see somebody and then maybe a couple weeks, a couple years down the road, you'll you might see them again and have an entirely different context. And I think that that is very purposeful within her journey throughout this film. You mean like the uh, young guy that she gives the um, the cigarette to? Love that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moments like that, and that's actually something that I did pick up more on the second time I'm that I was watching it. Is that there are a lot of like kind of twinning interactions with people where mm-hmm. you get you see them one time and then they do come back, and I don't think, at least for me, I didn't pick up on that necessarily the first time, but the second time I saw it, it really does work within yeah. an idea that you know. As you go through life, you will see people and experience things maybe multiple times, but you might need to do that in order to understand a different context about them and yourself. Home. Is it just a word or is it something you carry in you? These are questions, people. Well, I think <laughs> I, I mean, I also really do think that line that Fern says, I'm houseless, not homeless, is very resonant within the story, too. It's It's not somebody looking for just a place to call like their like this house this very basic surrounding it's about feeling comfortable where you are and and feeling like 
the place that you're at feels like it's self-fulfilled within you. And that's really what she's looking for throughout the entire movie. Home is what you make of it at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't have to be a house. And it's where you make it. Mm-hmm. They 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 also talk about that in uh, the in the first scene of the movie. Um, the the woman, the Amazon worker with the tattoo. Yeah, the tattoo. About, that was the quote I was saying. Yeah, yeah, and it. I I can't believe that like I didn't even remember that line from the first time I watched it. But there's so much in this about what home means to Fern, even though the question is never actually spoken by anyone in regards to her directly, it's very much what it's about for her trying to find what home is. Like she knows she's not homeless, but there are so many different ways to make a home. And I feel like part of this is about, you know, like what, what type of home she decides to make for herself. I can't believe that we've gone this entire time and we haven't mentioned the cinematography of this. Oh, I mentioned it. No, he he mentioned it. Yeah. Gorgeous. Well, I I would like to hear uh, Nicole. Like, what it like? What did you think of the shooting style of the movie? Yeah, I think that its cinematography is probably, to me, its strongest point. I mean, it's undeniably great. Like, I think anyone who says that the cinematography in this film isn't great is bluffing. Um, <laughs> and I really liked how a lot of the film actually, I do think, has. Um, a bit of a documentary feel to it, especially in those scenes sort of about the community, which, um, you you know, I think obviously like speaks to uh, the director's style, um, but I think also works really well specifically for this story. Yeah. The cinematography is amazing. And I mean, truly with this, the writer and God's own country, like Joshua James Richards, it's like becoming one of my favorite cinematographers. Like every one of them is just absolutely beautiful. And what's also great is that it's not just about like very pretty images, which there are plenty in this movie, but it's also about perspective. And it's about how you capture these moments from a very particular sense of sense of intimacy that I think is just perfectly executed in this film. I think it is the a great definition of what all types of cinematography can do, which is not just great imagery, but also just putting you within the mindset of character and tone. And I think the cinematography does an astounding job of accomplishing that. I agree, Josh. Yeah. I, I'm, I, and like, you know, one of my favorite um, moments of the cinematography is when um, Francis McDormand is swimming I, mm-hmm. that moment, like, I literally gasped, um, like, it's such a, it, it's, it's stunning on a visual level and surprising, but also, um, there's, it's so much of the film's, um, thematic level and character level is wrapped up in, um, just some brief shots and like, you know, it's it, aesthetically, it's flawless. It is so pretty to look at, but there is such a, a point of view that's portrayed through, the cinematography that is um, something really special. It really is the best cinematography of the year, bar none. I agree. Mm-hmm. Casey, what did you think of Ludovico Inaudi's score for the film? Oh, I'm it's not a score, ass. but I mean, it, he, it is music by him. But it's not a score. They they used his music. It is a soundtrack. Yeah, it's yeah. not an original score. All right, yeah. all right. What did you think of the soundtrack, Casey? <laughs> I loved it. This is exactly the type of music that I like in a movie. I like some sa- sad, thoughtful, piano-y music that will make me bring tears to my eyes. 
this is the exact type of music that speaks to me and I think resonates from an emotion, like it, any emotions and feelings that I had while watching it are only heightened by that music in a beautiful way. And I just, I think that especially when there's those shots of her driving through the various landscapes or walking around and you hear that music, I just think that it, it, it makes it just like, it takes your breath away almost. I think that it, it works so in tandem with the cinematography and the emotions of the film, I think. It almost bums me out that it is pre-existing music because <laughs> I would have liked yeah. to have heard what an original score would have sounded like, even if it was in the same vein as this, because the music that we do get is so, so good that it just pains me that it's not going to be eligible for Academy Award consideration. And I wonder if that was because of time. You know, maybe there was a question of uh, we don't have time to create an original score. We got it. We got to add music. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the decision was there because this music was perfect. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing is like it, <laughs> not it every is, calculation is made to about winning awards. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is sort of a shame just selfishly that we can't call this an original score because it like would be winning, I think, a lot of notices for that. But at the same time, the way that it is incorporated within this movie is so, so flawless and perfect that it manages to highlight every single emotion that you are feeling in all these scenes. And I think it is just used to perfection to really showcase where the deeper themes and and the deeper kind of uh, emotions of these characters really are. I, I think it's just a beautiful piece of music that we that we hear in the film and i think regardless of whether or not it's original it that to me does not impact how effective it is within the film no not at all it is really really well done absolutely all right so now for final thoughts on nomadland i am kicking it over to ryan ryan final thoughts anything that we did not mention that you want to mention um i just would like to weigh in too about the score i thought it was um I like what Casey said. It just strikes the perfect balance needed to tell this story. Um, also, something that I said to you, Matt, after seeing it, I I was really impressed and taken by the editing, and I uh, I think the montages that they um, they stream together are uh, are just as gorgeous as anything else in the movie. I, I think that's an underrated aspect that we should be talking about. Yeah, a part of me on a rewatch was paying more close attention to that this time around uh just a technique of it not necessarily like i was the first time where i was just really like getting lost in it i really was trying to analyze okay where does an edit happen does the edit make sense is anything jarring um is there anything that like you know i would have done differently you know you know just like little things like that and i really do think going back to my opening thoughts from earlier when you set out to tell a storytelling structure the way that Chloe Zhao does with this, where it is not a traditional narrative in that it, it, the screenplay is not hitting the beats that you would expect it to hit and in the order uh, of events that you would expect it to follow, I, I think the editing is crucial to making us not feel like this is a, a three-hour slog. It is less than two hours long. I mean, that's very merciful when you really think about it. And I do think that the film is perfectly paced in that regard for the type of story that it is trying to tell. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it needs to be given a little bit more credit than uh, credit's been thrown at it so far. Cool. And, you know, just one last thing. I do think that, like, the editing and the cinematography and the directing and, I guess, um, Francis McDormand 
like two, but especially those three technical elements, they are so much on the same page. And I think that's why the film works so why it's so why it's executed like to the most flawless extent. Well, did you know that Chloe Zhao is also the editor? Yes, of course. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you knew that. But like I'm, you know, in whenever in college, I we were I we whenever I was taught about Hitchcock, we were taught like you know the my professor made a point of describing how the directing and the editing and the cinematography all really have to be on the all really have to be aligned in order for a film to really be successful. And I think this film, those three like compartmentalized parts are so like they're they're very much aligned and i think this is a great example of of that and whenever you add the narrative and character and emotional perspective of francis mcdormand in who is on the same page as chloe like it's it makes for what i was describing earlier as something objectively executed to the best extent possible yeah i i would I, to nicole's point earlier um i think she was saying this i know about the cinematography but even about the movie overall if somebody stands there and says to me no nomadland's a bad movie and i'm going to tell you why I, I mean i would love to listen to that argument just to hear what that person pulls out of their ass but i don't think anybody can sit back and like objectively look at this movie and say that this is a bad movie <laughs> Uh, you may you may not vibe with it, and that's totally okay. But I I think that there is a lot to admire here. Uh, final thoughts, Nicole. Okay. Um, like you were saying just now, I don't think there's any way to say that this isn't a impeccably well made film. I do think it's a film that some people are going to jive with, and some people aren't. And I'm sad to say that I'm one of those people. <laughs> um, I also think I have maybe like a weird experience coming into the movie and that I might be one of the few people who saw the movie A Short History of the Long Road earlier this year, which is also about van dweller nomad types. And that is a film that is about a teenage girl who was raised in that community um, and has to, after the death of her father, decide if she's going to continue on it on her own. So I already knew, I like whenever I saw that, I, I did some looking into sort of these type of nomadic people. And so I think that maybe part of it for me was that I had seen a film about a similar subject, but like with a, I don't want to say a more compelling narrative, but like a more solid narrative. So I think that maybe that's part of why I like struggled a little bit with it. I don't know. I did really like that movie too. I will recommend it to anyone who sees Nomadland is like interested in seeing more films about this type of uh, culture and community. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a film that I respect more than I love, but I do still think uh, it's one of the better made films of the year. All right. All right. Let's hear now from Josh Parm. Obviously I really, really do love this movie. I think it does so many things really well. Um, we've already mentioned her, but I do want to give another shout out to um, both Swanky and Linda May, who both of them like they don't have very big parts in this, but they do so much to help to basically like give so much um, layered authenticity to the world that is around the central character. And I found that their characterizations in their performances and the way that they are presented within this movie to feel so natural and incredibly cathartic and emotional. And it only helped to add to my sense that this was a really well-told story that had a very particular perspective 
of how these characters operate and what they're going through. And I think that, you know, when you hire non-actors that can sometimes go one way or another, I don't always think that can a hundred percent work, but I think it really, really paid off here. And they were two people, especially that I thought really brought a lot to selling the authenticity of this world. 1517 to Nomadland. This is not. <laughs> <laughs> We, we don't need to mention that ever, ever again, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next, let's hear from Casey Lee Clark. Yeah, I think echoing what Josh said, I've, I've made it clear that I really love this film and I really connected to it and found a lot of emotions in it. For whatever reason, I think, it, like I said, that combination of the music and just so many little tangible details in it that just I always found myself like tearing up a bit, whether it's like her looking at old photographs of her husband or her explaining the story about her dad with the plates. There's just so many little world building type details in it that really stuck with me. I did also see this almost two months ago and I really, I can't wait to see it again because there's some stuff that's a little fuzzy in my brain. I can't necessarily pinpoint these big moments as if I saw it yesterday, but I do, I do really love the film and I, I, I encourage a lot of people to see it because beyond just me loving a lot of the emotions of it and what I took from it from my own personal experience. I do think that it is incredibly well-made and well-executed from everyone involved. Dan Bear. It's so good. It's so well done. And I really, really like it. And I, I wish I really, really loved it because I, I'm right there with it. Like I said in my opening for like 80, 90% of it. And then I just can't, I can't get over that line into love, even though so many of the elements really do work for me. The, the cinematography and the way they use the score and Francis McDormand is just spectacular. And the, the, the personality of all the people they cast whether it was the non-actor people or the more actor types, you know, David Strathairn in particular, you know, brings a level of, of warmth to that character that you, you, you don't just get. It feels like I should love it and I don't. And I hate that I don't. And I hate that I have watched this movie twice now and I still don't. <laughs> but that's where I am. I am... At a 9 out of 10 on this one. I think it's one of the best films of the year. I am shocked to even hear myself say that out loud because for all intents and purposes, I feel like sometimes I know myself very well. And every now and then I surprise myself too. I typically don't like movies like this. I don't. But I think if this movie was like, let's say, I don't know, two hours and 15 minutes long, maybe then I would uh, agree with that. And I would say that uh, the pacing and the length and, you know, how it doesn't kind of feel like there's anything happening while <laughs> while watching it uh, would be a hindrance for me. But it's not. It gets in. It gets out. I really, really am interested in this community and in the characters uh, within it. I'm also interested in Fern. I know we talked a little bit about that here. I still am very interested in her as a character and also the performance that Frances McDormand brings to it. I love the cinematography, love the editing, love the soundtrack. And I also really, really like the way that Chloe uh, Zhao is carving out a piece for herself 
within contemporary American cinema. I think that she is a filmmaker that reminds me of uh, Terrence Malick in a lot of ways, and I am very, very extremely excited to see what she does in the MCU. <laughs> All right. With that said, Dan Bear, what's the grade? Um, I, I did, before I give my grade, I needed to say, like, you know that in some alternate universe, there is a version of this movie written and directed by the Coen brothers and still starring Francis McDormand. And how much different but also good in its way that movie would be to think about is kind of fascinating to me. But anyway, I, I um, think the uh, the the top hat piano player uh, <laughs> kind of wandered onto the set from Buster Scruggs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. What's the grade? Um, my grade is an eight out of ten. All right. Nicole. I am also an eight out of ten. All right. Casey Lee Clark. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. I think I could probably eventually get myself to a 10 on a repeat viewing, plus maybe some removed time from the first time seeing it. I think also being where I'm at in my life right now, I think very heightened emotions the first time seeing this film. But at the moment, I'm going to go with a nine. Could always apply for a job at Amazon, you know. Just just saying. Uh, All right. And then uh, Ryan. Ryan, what's the grade? I'm a strong nine here. Josh Parham. I am also at a nine out of 10. It's, I will admit that it does kind of slow down in the pacing a little bit too often for me to like fully embrace it as a full out masterpiece, but I respond to so many elements of this movie. And I think it is definitely one of the very best films of the year. All right. So Oscar potential for Nomadland. Uh, We know that score is off the table. I definitely think after a rewatch and Ryan, I, I you know, I, I thought about your praise a bit there. I, I definitely think that editing needs to be more in the conversation than it currently is, because I do think that everyone is looking at the cinematography. But there is a real there is a real, real chance, considering how odd that branch has been lately, where they've just kind of snubbed expected contenders and then thrown us some curveballs here or there uh, that we wouldn't necessarily expect to see get nominated. Um, I think editing could happen. And then you have the obvious ones, uh, picture, director, actress, adapted screenplay. I mean, am I am I leaving anything? Uh, well, what do we think about David Strafer? And for those of you that have now seen it, because I personally don't think that he's that strong of a contender, but what do you guys think? I think this movie would have to be like either the movie or like Francis McDormand would absolutely be needing to win one of like either one of their categories for me to buy him getting in. Cause he's very good in the movie certainly, but I feel like his presence in it is so limiting that I feel like he only gets nominated as a coattail situation. And that only happens if it has like one very big win guaranteed, which it doesn't have right now. I also feel like this movie is so much Francis McDormand's movie in many ways that even though people are obviously going to go for her, I just honestly don't see people remembering to put him in. Because like you said, he goes kind of in and out of the film. It's not a huge role. It's also not like a super meaty part. Um, So I agree, Josh. I think it would have to like really be sweeping. There'd have to be like really huge love for it. 
for me to see a scenario in which he gets in. I I actually do think that he is in, in the conversation. I think I'm like one of the like very few of us who have him in our top ten predictions on on the website for next best picture. Um, I think you know best supporting actor is such a hot mess um, this year <laughs> that um, that uh, to ignore him would like because No Bad Land is going to get several nominations. You know this is a weaker year. It's going to fill up categories. You know it has such a prestige factor to it. Um, whenever I first saw it, it reminded me of the um, of like John Hawk in um, Winter's Bone. Yeah, like that type of a, a nomination. Even though that part was a little meatier, I still think that he supplies an emotional um, pillar to this movie and to Fern as a character that is memorable. So I think he's on the table, and you know, either he's going to happen or he won't. I think it's. I don't think it's going to be a surprise nomination that happens at the you know on Oscar morning. I think he'll either show show up at all the precursors or he won't. So, but I think I think that it's in the mix. Yeah, I think you're kind of right, Ryan. I can see like if people just love this movie, I, I think that he can you know sort of come up the middle with all the with you know like Trial of the Chicago Seven and One Night in Miami that have you know multiple people in the running. You know, having them all split votes and have him sort of come up the middle, I think is very possible. But I genuinely and he doesn't he doesn't have a scene at all and i think that when you know when people are looking at their ballots and they're looking at if they see his name they'll be like oh yeah he was nice yeah but i i don't know that they're going to think of the like oh that was a performance like we really need to nominate him for that i if if it happens it's going to be because of vote splitting elsewhere yeah, I don't know what the lasting impression of the quality of the work is necessarily other than, oh, he's he's good. He's nice in the movie, you know, and yeah. I, I, I agree that it would be a coattail nomination if it were to happen. What's got me freaking out right now. And listen, I want to just preface by saying this is a doomsday Armageddon hell on earth scenario. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm truly being a real cynical, cold, heartless bastard when I even throw this out there to you all. Chloe Jaw is number two right now in Best Director to David Fincher, but I have to consider a world where she misses because it is the director's branch of the Academy at the end of the day, and I'm freaking out about it. <laughs> but they love Terrence Malick, and this is very Malickian. I know, I know. Like, I have her at my number two, and I believe me when I tell you, I am not planning to remove her from my predictions, but... I I, I want to just say for anyone that's listening right now, if you're not considering her, you're a goddamn fool. <laughs> you are a goddamn fool to not put her on your ballot. <laughs> Matt, like, you know, I remember back whenever uh, this was first um, being seen um, a few months ago and some people were I, I some people were suggesting that she may not have enough. Um, uh, she, she may not have enough of a punch to get in um, yes. to best director. But I saw it. And whenever I saw it, I was like thinking like this whole movie is the direction. Like I, mm-hmm. I just I can't imagine a world where somebody with as much of a rising star type of a profile as her, um, that she would that that she would miss for this. I think the directing branch will definitely respond to this film and very much respect it. I hope I you think are right. that my thing earlier in the season when like for example when I did the review on the site, I didn't include her in Best Director, and that was mostly because we were still seeing some really big auteur projects coming out later in the year that are now not coming out 
<laughs> or they have I, come out and they have underwhelmed. Yeah, exactly. So I think especially now, but basically I think after, I mean, after Tenet disappointed and then um, Dune moved to, well, I mean, HBO Max, but next year it's, that was when I was like, no, she's definitely in because before it was a question of like, you know, the director's branch being the director's branch and not really doing the whole women thing for stupid reasons. And, but now I, because of the strength of the movie, I think she's, she's definitely in whereas opposed to before I was seeing her in like the dread sixth place. Plus I can see her winning a lot of critics prizes. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that building up her profile and building up the momentum that, whereas I think like, you know, I think a lot of people right now have Fincher predicted for the Oscar, but I think that critics especially will go more for her work. I think. Let me tell you something. The, the buzz right now, the way that I'm seeing this all shaking out, Nomadland is definitely going to be the Roma of this year with the precursors uh, amongst the critics groups, in my opinion. And what, might be really shocking is Nomadland could garner enough support and passion that it could become a parasite. No, I agree with you, Matt. I, I'm not ready to say that that is exactly what is happening and is going to happen, but I think the potential is certainly there because I'm looking at the year as a whole at this point in terms of what has dropped off in terms of buzz and granted things can always come back and I also am thinking about things that are just sheer disappointments that have fallen off completely No Bad Land is like the one thing that has just been a consistent and it is up there my question mm-hmm. then becomes if it, it you know if Chloe Jaw does win say director over Fincher which you know I'm not saying it is going to happen, but let's just entertain the possibility for here for a moment. You know, let's imagine it also wins adapted screenplay. Picture is not far off at that point. I mean, not far off at all. Because <laughs> I, I can tell you this much. I don't think Francis McDormand is winning a third one for this. Anyone that I've seen that has said that, I, I'm like questioning their sanity because I just don't see it. No, she's getting yeah. in, but she's not winning. Yeah. Yeah, she is going to be the very solid, respectable placeholder kind of nomination in that she's definitely not winning, but there's no question that she belongs there. I, I, I've always thought that, you know, this will definitely have enough passion to be high up in the lineup for best picture. It's probably top five, but I don't, a picture win. I, I don't know. I still don't think that it is going to play to a broad enough swath of the Academy for that to happen. I, I, I do kind of agree. Because there are just going to be a lot of people who will find it too slow. The one that the, one of its nominations that I honestly feel shakiest about right now is adapted screenplay. Ooh, I, see, I because, say that. because I think that she, because I mean like it's, it's one of those screenplays that feels so naturalistic that you almost question if it was written at all. And those things showing up in adapted, not really, that doesn't really happen. No, that happens more in original than anything. Yeah. Uh, I still think that the strength of just the movie overall would probably get it into adapted screenplay. I mean, right now it's one of the few contenders that I could actually legitimately see winning. And it's sort of the thing with Best Picture, too. I only think there's like really at this point 
two or three movies that I could conceivably see winning Best Picture, and Nomadland is one of them, which is going to help her, I think, in both adapted screenplay and director. The place I think is most vulnerable is in editing, because I think that is where that branch may look at this movie that, you know, is not, it doesn't really move that quickly. It's very you know, meticulous in the way that its pacing is. And sometimes that can be a problem for that branch. And it is the director doing it. And I don't know if they're going to be entirely receptive to the director also editing the movie. I I don't know. That That's the one where I am kind of looking at is it could be like the sixth place that doesn't make it in. Okay, so Josh, the reason that I didn't say that about editing was because I don't think it's getting in for editing. I don't okay. think it's I mean, that's, a chance. That's fair too. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, like something, like a movie that like I started comparing Nomadland to over the weekend, and you guys will probably disagree with me, but I think that if it does win Next Best Picture, I think a more apt comparison would be moonlight i think moonlight is a slowly paced movie and even if like us film people don't really see it as a slowly paced movie like nor i've watched moonlight with like like more mainstream people and they find it incredibly slow paced sure i think and i mean I, and they consider artsy whatever whatever and um i think that if if nomadland if nomadland does somehow find a path to get to best picture it would be in a moonlight type of a way and like you know i granted like if this were a normal year and we had a really strong adapted screenplay race i could see dan's argument kind of holding up that it could fall out just because the screenplay doesn't feel as vigorous but i think the writer's branch will recognize the themes and the um the character and the thought that went into creating this narrative and, you know, one thing that we've discussed internally a lot over the past couple of months is the idea of um, if David Fincher is this lock who is going to sweep his way to a Best Director win, finally, that a way to give um, Chloe a, a consolation prize is to give her the win for this. And I think a lot of us have backed off from that um, because of uh, the, the lack of substance in the screenplay or the lack of um, substantive plot. Um, but I still think that's on the table. I... I just don't think that there's anything firm we can decide right this minute without seeing other pieces shake out. Maybe people will will really like the screenplay. You know, I was shocked that the Golden Globes nominated Roma for screenplay. So, I mean, if the Golden Globes nominate Nomadland for screenplay, I think we need to start thinking about this in a different way. Yeah, I would agree with that, actually. I mean, I do think that the conversation around Chloe Zhao and director, I don't think, I think we're understating, like, the importance of, like, she would be the first woman of color nominated in that cat. I think it's, there's significance yeah. to that nomination beyond the obvious of predicting of a win or not. Like I, I don't want to undersell the importance of her nominate of her being nominated. Sure. No. And, and I will also say, sorry to be cynical, but oftentimes when on the very rare occasions, unfortunately that a woman is nominated in director, it usually comes with the narrative of, look, here's the one woman yep. you can nominate for best yep. director this year. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll have to wait and see how things play out over the next couple of months. Months. All right. Sorry. In <laughs> yes. any event, Nicole, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman 16. Ryan C. Showers. You can find me at RCS818 on Twitter. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Casey Lee Clark. 
You can find me on Twitter at Casey Lee Clark. And Josh Parham. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Nomadland here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a comment, rate us five stars. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.